Well, there's something special about a wedding. In its simplest and purest form, a husband and wife start a new life together. They join themselves, what Scripture refers to as becoming one flesh. They join together physically, emotionally, financially, and often parentally. Marriage unites them in a close, permanent bond. There's really no other human institution or occasion quite like it. That's why it's so important. This past week I was thinking about the fact that there are really only two dates that stand out for people their birthday, and their wedding anniversary. You're not expected to know the day you first learned to ride a bike. You're not expected to know, you know, the day that you first bought your car, your first car, or even a high school graduation. You might know those things, but no one ever berates you that you forgot the day that you first learned to ride a bike. What's the matter with you, right? No one ever says that. But you are expected to know your anniversary. That is, if you want to have a good marriage. Now, some weddings take on extra significance because they go beyond the normal. I'm thinking here of a royal wedding that involves a nation's future rulers. Now, such weddings are not as significant politically as they used to be, but they're still very important because they capture a nation's attention and really no expense is spared, right, to throw out this incredible wedding. And I think naturally we think of the British royal weddings, right? The last decade we've seen Prince William and Prince Harry get married. Before that, if you're a little bit older, you remember Prince Charles and Lady Diana's wedding. That was still the most watched royal wedding ever. You guys remember that? Back in 1981? Her dress, that train, 25-foot train on that dress, unbelievable. The wedding cost $137 million. You thought... Yeah, you thought your wedding was expensive. But their wedding wasn't really just about them, was it? It was about the entire nation that gathered to celebrate as well as gathered the attention of the entire world. Today we're going to discuss the wedding of all weddings. Scripture calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. The time when Jesus... The bridegroom returns to gather his bride, the church. When that day arrives, we're going to experience a close, permanent communion with God that we have never experienced before. And we will celebrate as we have never celebrated before. And it will satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts for fellowship. If you're not encouraged by this passage, I don't know what else I can do for you. Because this is just an absolutely amazing text. After we get done walking through, then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because it is a foreshadowing of this great feast. So let me invite you to turn to Revelation 19 as we continue our series in this amazing book. Last time in Revelation 18... 
We saw the destruction of Babylon, the prostitute, a symbol of the world. And by the world, I'm not referring to created order that God has made good, but the fallen human opposition to God and His rule. The world includes includes those who do not follow the Lord and who also create all kinds of cultural means and so forth of promoting sin and idolatry. Now, in the Old Testament, Babylon was an actual city. It was known for its its pride and its accomplishments and its idolatry too. God predicted that it was going to fall one day completely, and the Persians came along and destroyed it. The Revelation takes Babylon and uses it symbolically, applies it spiritually to be the world as a formidable opposition, formidable opponent to God's people, tempting them, as well as ensnaring the nations to pursue wealth and pleasure rather than God. Now, in our passage today, we have a brief final discussion of Babylon, and then we move to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, originally, I was going to include the rest of Revelation 19, but just decided to focus on this for this morning. So let me invite you to turn to the first part of our passage in Revelation 19. It's the celebration of Babylon's destruction. Verses 5, excuse me, 1 to 5. Let's read it together. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So John begins by saying, after these things, meaning after this previous visions of Babylon's destruction, then he hears something. He hears the redeemed multitudes in heaven shouting, hallelujah. Do you know that that word hallelujah means praise the Lord? It's a Hebrew word that's been transliterated into Greek and English. It means praise the Lord. It appears in throughout the Old Testament, but it only appears here in this passage in the New Testament. And speaking of praising the Lord, just as kind of an interesting aside, I read yesterday, yesterday that on the top of the Washington Monument is inscribed the Latin phrase, laus Deo, which means praise be to God. Did you know that? Just learned that yesterday. I thought that was a very incredible fact. Don't go looking it up on your phone right now to double-check me or whatever. Focus on the sermon, okay? You'll see it's accurate. But going back to our text, the redeemed praise God for His salvation, glory, and power. Why? As it says, His judgments are righteous and true. Everything God does is just and true. And specifically, what He does is just and true here in, in, in bringing down Babylon, who corrupted the earth with her 
leading the nations into idolatry. She also persecuted God's people. And so for all of this, God brings judgment upon this fallen world. And in verse 3, we read a second time that God's people rejoice that Babylon is tormented forever. Her judgment is forever. She's not going to revive again. This fallen world will crumble when God judges it, and it's not going to come back again. Then the angelic beings join the chorus as they too shout hallelujah. There's 24 elders and the four living creatures. And then finally a voice from the throne commands all God's servants to praise him. Both humans and angels praising God. What a day that's going to be. To not only join praising God with all of his people, but to have all the angels around praising the Lord with us. What a day. What a moment. So there's this universal praise that Babylon is judged. No longer going to lead astray the, the nations and persecute God's people. Now sometimes Christians feel like it might be inappropriate to praise God for his justice. If that is the case with you, let me just encourage you to think about three things. First, God's justice is perfect, unlike human injustice. God always gets it right, friends. And indeed, our awareness of injustice, you know what that tells us? That there's actually a perfect standard of justice, right? In other words, that innate sense of justice that we all have, where does that come from, right? Unless God put it into each person's hearts. I think it's a great argument for the existence of God. God's justice is perfect. Second thing, God would be morally wrong not to execute justice. When people do things wrong to us and they get away with it, doesn't it bother you? Right? Or when you see great injustice in our society or the world, it bothers us and rightfully so. We're made in God's image and we all long for justice, for things to be made right. Likewise, for God to do nothing would be wrong. Right? And then third, God must execute justice to prepare the way for the new creation. In other words, the old order has to go for the new to arrive. And I, for one, I don't want to continue to see sin and evil forever and ever. I don't want to continue to look around and see terrorism attacks and suicide bombings like this past week. I don't want to continue to see genocide and murder and adultery and greed and materialism, and so forth, on and on and on. And I don't want there to continue to be idolatry where God is robbed of the rightful worship that He deserves. I want God to end this fallen world and to establish righteousness forever. And when He does that, we will celebrate. I was thinking this past week about the fall of the Berlin Wall. Guys, remember that back in 1989? That was a momentous occasion. For those who are a little bit younger, I'll just recap here briefly. But the Soviet Union built this wall to divide the east and western parts of Germany. And they did that, you know, to at least supposedly keep people from going into East Germany. But we all knew that was bogus. People weren't trying to get into East Germany. They wanted to get out of there. And it was a great symbol of oppression. 
President Reagan famously stood outside the wall and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Well, in 1989, interestingly, there was a government miscue. They only intended to allow people to apply for a travel visa. But instead, if it was unclear whether people could just simply pass through the wall. Immediately, hundreds of thousands of East Germans flooded the wall. And guards were given no new instructions. Eventually, people started tearing down the wall, even with their bare hands. When that wall fell, people celebrated. Likewise, when Babylon falls, when this fallen world crumbles, we will shout hallelujah. Amen, church? So the celebration of Babylon's destruction. Now we come to the second part, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's read verses 6 to 9 together. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So again, this thunderous heavenly praise of God who reigns. The chorus urges all to rejoice and to give God the glory. Why? Well, it said there in verse 7, the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. So when Jesus returns, it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb. What does this mean, all this marriage imagery here? Well, in Scripture, we find this really rich theme of marriage between God and His people. God is the groom, and the bride is His people. For example, in the Old Testament, we find this metaphor with God and Israel. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Isaiah 62, 5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So just as a human marriage unites two people in a close, intimate bond, there was a similar close, intimate bond between God and his people, and both parties were to remain faithful in this bond. And this imagery carries over now to the New Testament. When Jesus comes on the scene, he calls himself the bridegroom. Great kind of subtle hint there about his own divinity because this is how God speaks of himself and Jesus is calling himself the bridegroom. Mark chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, he alludes to himself as the groom. Matthew 22, he describes the kingdom of God like a wedding feast. And then we get Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, these powerful words about how Christ is the bridegroom. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Strong word for husbands to live out, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Christ is the bridegroom 
who deeply loves his bride, the church. By the way, I hope you notice the contrast here, here in, in Revelation 19 between these two women. Babylon, right? Uh, the prostitute. The contrast with the church, right? The bride of Christ. One, sinful, picturing the world. The other, picturing God's people. No accident. These two are set against one another. It's going to be even clearer in Revelation 21 when uh, the bride of Christ appears once again. So this marriage imagery is very important scripture. God is depicting for us this relationship, this close spiritual bond between God and his people runs throughout the pages of the Old Testament. We see it in the New, and now it's coming to fulfillment, church, when Jesus returns for the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we're going to experience this unprecedented communion with God. Amen? What a moment that's going to be. I think there's also another dimension as well that I, I just want to speak about, and that is communion with each other. Weddings are occasions of great human celebration. For example, in, in the ancient Jewish culture, when they would celebrate a wedding, it wouldn't just last maybe a day. It could go on for a week. People would celebrate, friends, family, the whole community would be involved. It was the greatest occasion on a human level. And I think this is important for us. You know, when Jesus returns, we're going to celebrate with each other in the new creation. Like a wedding feast, there's going to be dancing and singing and music and food and conversation and laughter and so forth. That sounds great, doesn't it? And it gets even better when we realize we're in the new creation. Because, you know, we're not going to have any more time constraints. We're not going to say, oh, well, you know, it's almost 9 o'clock. My bedtime's 10 o'clock. I got to get back to it. I got to leave. There's going to be no more time constraints. Amen? As far as I can tell, there's no bills in heaven. Amen for that, right? I mean, I'm a guy that has three daughters. So I'm looking at wedding bills one day, right? This speaks to me. <laughs> no more bills. No more sin in our relationships. How often does that happen? Oh, that was a great occasion, but man, I wish that person hadn't said this or done that. Kind of put a damper on the whole occasion. Not going to be that way in the new creation. Sin's gone. And we're going to have billions of people to get to know. Not going to just sit in a corner not knowing anybody. There's going to be billions of people to get to know. No more loneliness, despair, broken relations. Now, there's more to the new creation, as we'll see, than just celebrating. But celebrating is an important part of the new creation. And we need to see God that way, amen? God is a good God. Every good and perfect gift that we have comes from God. And when in the new creation, these things are going to be given even a greater upgrade, so to speak. And perhaps that's why the angel says, these are the true words of God. 
God's promises are so good, perhaps. You know, maybe we just need a reminder that it's, 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 he's so good that it's not too good to be true, but it's actually good and true. Now, we also need to talk for a minute about our wedding garments here. Our garments are called, did you see that in the text? Fine linen, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. I believe those righteous deeds include the, the good works that we do to serve the Lord and to serve others. Those righteous deeds also include our character and our witness for God. So all people at the marriage supper are wearing righteous deeds that they characterize us. Now, some Christians are going to have you know, more refined righteous deeds than others, but all of us have something there because the bride has made herself ready for the return of Christ. We're ready. We're prepared. Do we do it all ourselves? Is this all just about human effort? No. What does it say there? It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. Our righteous deeds are granted to us. You say, by whom? God. He gives us, He grants us those righteous deeds. So which is it? Do we make ourselves ready or does God? Actually, it's both. It's both. We strive to grow in righteous deeds. We genuinely do that. But yet behind all of it is God's grace. Amen. You see this dynamic of Scripture in other places. Philippians 2, 13, 12 to 13, Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we do not work for our salvation. Christ accomplished our salvation. But we do work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We make every effort to grow in Christ's likeness. But what does he say there? With every effort you make, not only is God behind it, but he gives you even the desire to do those things. Wow. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. There was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul worked harder than all of the other apostles. But notice he's not puffing out his chest, but he said it was the grace of God in me. I heard one pastor share an illustration about how he gives his kids money, and they use that money to buy him gifts. Maybe that's a little bit helpful, right? They, they do the work. They, they buy it from the store, but he gave them the money. He took them to the store, right? There's sort of that interplay there. And likewise, we as a church have to prepare for Christ's return. We have to strive. We have to make every effort to be ready for him. But with every effort we make and every step of progress we do, it's all God's grace along the way. Is your brain hurting yet? It should, because only God knows how he does all this stuff. But our takeaway is that we have a solemn responsibility to pray to prepare for Christ's return as a bride prepares for her wedding. And as we do so, as we serve and grow spiritually, let us remember that God gives us grace along the way so that there is absolutely no room for pride. Our passage closes with the fascinating interaction with John and the angel in verse 10. It says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So John worships the angel. 
And in reply, the angel rebukes him. He shouldn't worship the angel. He's a fellow servant. All creatures should only worship God. Now, you're probably thinking, John, what's up with you, right? Why are you worshiping this angel? It's a great question. I mean, John, he saw the resurrected Jesus. He saw Jesus ascend to heaven. He's been given these visions and revelation of Christ. And yet he falls down and worships an angel. He does it again in Revelation 22. You know what that tells me? Is that we have a deep inclination to idolatry, don't we? Even when we're confronted with the greatness and glory of God, there's just something in us that gravitates toward idolatry of substituting other things in the place of God. But praise God when we get to heaven, no more of that. One other thing, by the way, I think this interesting episode with John, you know what that shows me? Just the reliability of Scripture. I would think that's kind of embarrassing for John, right? (laughs) To include that detail. I think most of us would kind of want to leave that part out for their all of eternity, for this word, this description to be laid in there. Woo, that's not great, John. But it just shows that Scripture just faithfully records what took place even if it's embarrassing for these great leaders. And there are many other cases in Scripture where great leaders show themselves that we are fallen, unlike Jesus. As we close, I just want to make sure that everyone who is listening to my voice today will attend the marriage supper of the Lamb. You will not just show up and go to the the marriage supper of the Lamb. You don't crash the wedding. You have to come on God's terms. You say, how do you tend? Well, in Matthew 22, Jesus tells a parable about this reality. It's called the parable of the wedding feast. There was a king, Jesus says, who wanted to throw a grand wedding feast for his son. And so he sent out his servants to the kingdom and invited people to come. But people were not interested. So he sends them out again, the servants, to come to the wedding feast. Again, people weren't interested. Some of them even persecuted the servants and killed them. The judge, the king judged the murderers of his servants. Eventually, as the servants kept going out, enough people arrived for the wedding feast. And it was full. You see how this is a parable of salvation? God is that king throwing this wedding feast for Christ, his son. Then Jesus says in verses 11 to 13, When the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the man did not have a wedding garment, and he was removed from the feast and judged. How do we attain that wedding garment? Why don't we let the bridegroom tell us? In Mark 1.15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We need to repent and believe in the gospel. He said, what does repentance mean? Repent means you turn from your sin. God made you. 
He desires a relationship with you. But because of our sin, we turn away from knowing God. We might know that He exists, but that's different than knowing God personally. We don't acknowledge His rightful authority over our lives. And sadly, we often think that we are righteous enough in ourselves, our own deeds, to go to this great heavenly feast. But the Bible says we are not. We've all sinned in overt ways. And the Bible says even our best deeds have sin woven into them. Do you realize that? Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And he, in other words, even our best still has sin in it. So how is that the case? Let's just give you an example. Helping somebody. Helping somebody in need. When we help somebody in need, if we're honest with ourselves, there often, often can be impure motives and thoughts that run through our mind. We might help them outwardly, but inwardly we're complaining in our hearts. This is taking too much time. I'm frustrated by this, and so forth. We might, help, we might be helping, but inwardly we're looking down on that person. You got yourself into this mess. Why am I helping this? Or we might help, but we want other people to notice us. Boy, it'd be great if somebody really recognized me for all this time I spent into this. When we examine ourselves with the piercing light of God's righteousness, it's not a pretty picture. And that's our best deeds. God sees all of that. That's why we cannot put on our own wedding garments. We must repent of our sin. Do you see that? And then we need to believe in the gospel. You say, what's the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Christ. That Jesus is fully God who became a man, lived a sinless life. He laid down his life, that sinless life that none of us live. He laid down that life and he died on the cross to be our substitute, to be the one to take our place, to absorb the wrath of God in our place. Then he rose from the dead to vindicate his claims about his deity and so forth, his messiahship, these incredible claims. He vindicated himself, and he also showed that he was victorious over death and the grave. That is the gospel. And when we believe, we receive his righteousness. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So our wedding garments that we need, our righteousness, it doesn't come from ourselves, but we receive it as we trust Christ. That is how we enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so if you have never trusted Christ for salvation, let me invite you to repent and believe in the gospel. The wedding invitation has been sent Will you respond? And why would you not want to be there for this grand occasion? Amen? Church, we're going to now celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he instituted this Lord's Supper. He took the Passover meal that they were celebrating, and he transformed it to show how he was the fulfillment of the Lord's Supper. He said that the bread symbolizes his body that was broken our behalf. The cup symbolizes the blood of the new covenant that was poured out so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. And then interestingly, Jesus also alludes to another aspect of the Lord's Supper. He said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus is here alluding to the marriage supper of the Lamb when we will feast and celebrate with him in the new creation. So the Lord's Supper reminds us of what Jesus did for us on the cross and that also foreshadows what you and I will experience in the new creation. So before we partake of the Lord's Supper, and here's some crinkling going on out there. <laughs> before we partake, just a reminder that Jesus instituted it for his people. So if you've not become a Christian, we kindly ask you to refrain and to consider becoming a Christian today or in the near future, and would be delighted to have you join us next time. For Christians, Scripture encourages us that before we take it, to reflect on our lives and to make sure that there are no, there's no unconfessed sin before partaking. So let me invite you now to take one of the Lord's Supper containers around you and then join me in prayer, and we will take it in a few moments. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that night before your crucifixion, how you gave us the Lord's Supper. We thank you for all that it tells us here in visible form, reminds us of the cross, how your body was broken, your blood was shed for us. And Lord, I pray today for someone who is never trusted you as their Savior and Lord, that today they would repent of their sin and believe in the gospel. Today would be the day of salvation. Even in this moment now, they would turn to you. And God, our hearts are also filled with gratitude how this is symbolic and foreshadows what we will experience with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And God, our hearts hopefully are filled with anticipation looking forward to that day. And Lord, now as we hold the bread and the cup before we partake, God, we ask that you would search our own hearts. And if there are ways that we have fallen short of your glory, we want to confess them to you now. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would prepare ourselves as a bride for her groom. But Lord, we need your grace. We need your grace. Grant us the grace to prepare 
for that day. Help us, Lord, by your grace to grow as individuals, to grow as a church, so that we would bring honor and glory to you. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord, and all God's people said, amen. Amen.